morning. It's good to see you. Thanks for being here and for worshiping with us today. And if you're joining us online, thanks for worshiping with us there as well. Um, I grew up in a little bit of a unique family scenario. So the, the home I grew up in, my, my dad's brother married my mom's sister. I'll let that sink in for a second, okay? So my dad's brother married my mom's sister. So two brothers married two sisters. You, you follow me now? Okay, you got that? All right. Now, my mom and dad had three boys. I'm the middle of, of three boys. And my aunt and uncle um, had three boys. And so the six of us boys are all very tightly stair-stepped together in age. And they're what, what's called uh, double cousins because of the, the way that that works out. And they really are, were like brothers for me, are like brothers to me. We grew up together in the same neighborhood. Um, at one point, there was like a year and a half, we all lived together in the same home. And so we were just, it was just one big, you know, happy family with lots of boys. And our favorite thing to do as boys was to play backyard baseball. Um, whether it was their house or our house, it didn't really matter. We had the wiffle ball and the bat, and we would play for hours um, wiffle ball. We would just play baseball, and we would play oftentimes so late in the evening until it was just not even, you know, couldn't even, wasn't even visible anymore. We would still just be playing and throwing and just hoping we could catch it and not get hit in the face. That was kind of how we functioned. Now, that was, that is um, most of the time how we played. However, lots of the times when we were playing and we would play for hours, um, it would ultimately at some point happen, almost every time we would do this, that there would be some sort of, uh, some sort of fight or argument or something that would happen that would like, you know, delay, stop the game. We'd have to like pause, work out the, you know, the issue that's going on. Sometimes it was like you could cool off and come back to play. Sometimes it was like we're done for the day because, you know, inevitably something would happen. A, ba- a call that someone didn't agree with, um, someone getting a little too aggressive and trying to throw the wiffle ball at someone's head, um, you know, someone too, talking too much trash, you know, just stuff, stuff would happen and it would, it would just create conflict and the conflict stalled things out oftentimes for a period of time, sometimes just Dell is done. And then the next day we'd start all over and do the same thing all over again. And inevitably that same pattern, that same cycle would just happen all over again. Now, some of you may be familiar with that kind of a pattern or cycle, maybe something from when you were a kid, but that pattern, that cycle can still happen in our relationships today, can't it? Where we feel like we're buzzing along with, um, you know, whatever context we're in, with our friends at school or at home or at work, we're doing well, and all of a sudden we hit some sort of a relational conflict and everything just stalls out. And you feel the heavy burden of the, the, the conflict, the relational difficulty, and uh, if it doesn't get resolved, it can make living with people or working with people miserable, can't it? Some of you are familiar with this. In fact, many of you are thinking this is good timing because right now I'm in relational conflict with somebody, okay? And you, you get it. Or maybe this past week you found yourself in some sort of relational conflict with somebody. Um, maybe the past day you found yourself in relational conflict with somebody. Some of you are here and you're thinking to yourself, no, I'm not in any kind of relational conflict at all. I'm good. And we hate you, okay? That's just the bottom line. No, just joking. If you're not experiencing relational conflict right now, that's great. But 
guess what? Stand by. It's coming, okay? Whether it happens tomorrow, later today, sometime this next week, you will face it. We all face it. And it might be helpful for you to know that it's not just a pattern or something that we face today, but it was something that the early church faced as well. In fact, James, the the writer of the book that we've been working our way through together as a church, um, is writing to a group of Christians, the first, the early church, the first Christians who were living in Jerusalem, but because of opposition to their faith, um, they had to scatter, they dispersed into all the regions of the Roman Empire. Uh, But just because that they dispersed from people who oppose their faith from the outside doesn't mean that when they go to church, there's not people who share the same faith that also they find themselves in relational conflict with. And so James steps in and says, hey, listen, this shouldn't be. As, As Christians, as people, we ought to be living differently in terms of the relationships and how we respond to the conflict in our lives. But the challenge for us is this, that when we face relational conflict, not only is it, you know, a heavy burden for us, not only is it exhausting, but for many of us, we just don't know how to respond differently. We don't know how to respond in such a way that would bring peace or bring resolution or bring change, and so we need instruction. And James is so helpful because he's always very practical, and he gives us practical instruction and how we can respond differently in the midst of relational conflict that we all face. And James' main concern is and always will be that we have a growing faith. And it's not that we're perfect, but that a growing faith you know, shows itself in its fruit, how we live out our lives. And so a growing and maturing faith means that we are, we're growing and living differently, responding differently when it comes to the relational challenges in our life. And so today, James is going to help us by answering the question, how does faith work in relational conflict? How does faith work in relational conflict? And it's very helpful, it's important for all of us to get because it's something that we all face, um, and it's, it's very practical instruction. So I want to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. Um, if you don't have it yet, we're going we're gonna to take a look at James chapter 4. But before we look at James 4, let me just mention this. Last week, just to kind of catch you up, last week, Doug did an excellent job talking in James chapter 3 about um, living with wisdom and really having a wisdom that comes from above, um, not choosing a wisdom that comes from below. So put it another way, it's, it's um, heaven down wisdom, not hell up wisdom. And there's a decision that we have to make in terms of which wisdom we want to apply. And the wisdom that James is pushing us towards is the wisdom that's heaven down, uh, a, a, a heavenly wisdom, which is shown by how we love. So wisdom from above is shown by how we love. In fact, in James chapter 3, let me go back and I'll show it to you. He says this, but the wisdom that comes from heaven, so heaven down wisdom, is first of all pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit, impartial and sincere peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So this is all about living with people with mercy, impartial, being sincere, being peacemakers. And all of that sounds good. And we all want to live that way, where we are um, sincere in our relationships, where we're making peace and not conflict and challenges. But the problem is, for many of us, is it's difficult to do. So again, we need James' instructions um, to help us with that. And for many people, you're thinking to yourself, well, why, why is it such a struggle? And I'll just, uh, Charles Schultz, uh, the, the 
you know, writer, the author of uh, Peanuts, said it this way, and I think it's humorous but helpful. He said this, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. Um, and maybe you've felt that way before. You've had that sense of like, yes, humanity, that's great, but people, that's hard. And we make up the people, right? That's part of the problem. And so James understands that, and he speaks to how can we live differently amidst the conflicts we have, because when you rub shoulders with people, guess what? You're going to have some relational friction and conflict along the way. So all that said, James chapter 4, I want to invite you now, if hopefully you found it, to please stand in honor of God's word. We'll read it and we'll take a look at it together. It says this in verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity toward, against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Okay, go ahead and have a seat. We'll take a look at this together. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you know that I shared with you a pattern of writing that's found in Scripture. And once you see the pattern um, in, in Scripture, it will help you in all of your Bible study because it's, you'll find it all over the place in terms of Scripture and in terms of how, uh, the pattern uh, of, of how things are laid out. And we see it again here in James. We saw it earlier in James. We'll show it to you again here in James because I want you to see the flow of James chapter 4, these, ver- these verses that we're going to look at. But we'll, again, we'll also point out, ah, this is how um, this, this pattern plays out in so many different ways um, in the Scripture. So if you're looking at James chapter 4, here's kind of the outline of how it goes. So it goes this way. First of all, James starts with relational difficulty with people, and he starts by talking about the root cause, the source, the cause of our conflicts with other people. So the difficulty we have with people, he addresses that first. Then he goes into relational difficulty with God. Not only do we have conflict with people, but we can also find ourselves in conflict with God, and he talks about the cause of that. Then he starts talking about some solutions. So how do we respond differently um, to God? When we're in conflict with God, how do we respond differently? And then he talks about how do we respond differently to people. So again, that's kind of the flow of this, this, this first part of James chapter 4. But what I want you to see again is that, that pattern of writing that's, again, throughout the New Testament. So it goes uh, people, God, then God, then people. So it's that A, B, now let me talk about B and A. So if you're here a couple weeks ago, you know what I'm talking about. If you weren't here, um, 
Don't worry about it. Just know that, it, again, it's brilliantly written, and um, this is kind of the pattern that you see uh, James use and many other New Testament writers as well. So, all that said, let's look at verse 1 together. So, verse 1, where he begins to talk about the relational conflict we have with people, this is what he says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So, he asks a question. He says, what is the cause, the source of the fights and the quarrels among you? And so, he's trying to just get to the root of it. And um, his next statement is telling, he says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So, before we can answer the question, he answers it for us. And I think this is helpful because what happens so often when it comes to the question of what's the cause of the quarrels and the fights among you? What do we typically answer with? Well, it's that person there, right? We, we easily point out and say, well, it's their fault. It's their problem. Oh, you want to know what caused the fight, the quarrel? Okay, glad you asked. Well, let me tell you who they are. Let me tell you what they did. Let me tell you what they said. And let me just dump, you know, back up the dump truck and just unload the trash and lay out all of their faults and all their shortcomings of the other person. Does that make sense? Do you ever do that? Just me. Okay. That's just how we tend to think. We look out and not in. And so before we can even answer the question, what's the cause of the fight? James answers it for us, and he says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So he says, before you can draw the battle line and then step back and say, it's those people on the other side, that's the problem, James answers it for us and says, wait, the battle is here inside of you, not out there with them. And it's a different way of thinking, and it's a helpful way of thinking because it's all too easy to point out and never look in. It's all too easy to say they aren't changing and stop and not stop and ask the question, God, how do I need to change? What's going on in here? I need to evaluate this first before I evaluate that. I want the world to change, um, and then it'll be better for me. That's kind of the orientation that we tend to have. And so James is very, very helpful in that he just says, let me just lay it out here for you first. Now that word desire, I highlight it for you because in Greek, it's the word hedonin which you hear, you hear that word coming, you know, helps us understand where we get the word hedonism. Do you get that? Hedonism, which is a, a philosophy of living that just says it's all about me. It's self-indulgence. It's about my pleasure. It's putting me at the center. And so he says, listen, the point is, the root cause is it's putting you, you put yourself at the center of things. That's the battle. That you're saying the center of the universe is who? Me right? It's about my desires, my wants, my needs. And hedonism is all about that. And we say it in lots of other maybe different ways. We say it as things like, hey, if it feels good, go ahead and do it, right? If it feels good to you, if it pleases you, go for it. And you hear that, you know, kind of subtle deceptiveness in that. Another way we say it is, is you hear it say, well, you do you, Okay, great. So it's all about me being the center of the universe, right? I live my life for me rather than I live my life for God. He's at the center. But when we get it wrong and we put ourselves at the center, hedonism, self-indulgence, self-pleasure, self, all self-centered stuff, we end up messing things up badly. 
And so this is the real battle to say, who's going to sit on the throne of your life, you or God? And he says, when you're in the center, you're the throne, guess what? The battle comes up and it creates conflict, not just in relationship with God, but with people. And that's what he's getting at here. Don't they come from your desires, the battle within you? Then he continues in verse 2, he says this, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And you read this and you're like, wait a minute, you know, I desire, but I don't have, so I kill? Oh, come on, I haven't killed anybody recently, right? So um, again, James is not talking about necessarily literally killing somebody, but you don't have to literally kill someone to have murderous thoughts in your heart, do you? You, you don't have to go very far to begin to think about, oh, I've been working through and trying to strategize how to assassinate their character, um, and that's what James, the kind of stuff that James is talking about. So maybe not literally murdered somebody, but you're killing, you're assassinating, you're damaging. It's malicious and murderous in what you do, what you say. And so he's saying, listen, when you don't get what you want, you go after other people. And, and it, you're, you're, it's coming from your heart. And then he says, it's not just that it's what you don't have, but you, co- you want what they have. So you covet. You want their power, their prestige, their position, whatever it might be. And so you covet that. You can't get it. So what do you do? You quarrel and fight. Um, I'm not getting my needs met. I'm not, you're not, you know, working around my schedule, my way, my understandings. And so we quarrel and fight. And when we quarrel and fight, what do we tend to do? We use words that are damaging to other people. That's what we end up doing. And so he's just being very honest and being very specific about our life, the battle that's going on within us. And here's the problem. When we are, James understands this, when we're so busy with this battle of how can we beat them and it's their problem, not my problem, and we're thinking about how to strategize to win or to work things out, we don't look up. We're just thinking about how we can solve the problem, and we're trying to use our own resources. And James is just pointing out the obvious. You don't have because you do not ask God. When we're so busy in conflict with other people and how to win and how to be right and how to make sure that they're, you know, doing what we want, and we don't look to the great resource we have, which is God. And as we, if we don't ask God, we miss out on the provision that God has for us in our conflict. And the greatest resource we have in conflict, by the way, is who? It's God, His wisdom, His way. The, the worst thing we could do is say, I'm going to rely on my resources, my wisdom, my way. But when we're arguing, when we're fighting, we're not looking up. We're not asking God for help. We're missing out on the provision that he wants to provide for us. But James also knows that maybe someone might say, but I did ask God and he didn't give me what I want. So he begins to answer that question in the next verse. He says this um, in verse 3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on whose pleasures? Your pleasures. So, oh, I asked God, but if I'm asking God to, you know, fix them, change them, work out the situation, uh, you know, so it's, it benefits me, guess who's, who's at the center still? Me. And when we're at the center, not God, is God going to be answering those prayers? The answer is no. Until we say, no, no, God, I've got to put you back at the center. I've got to be thinking about others, not myself. I've got to be thinking about pleasing you, not pleasing me. That's what God responds to. But when it, again, when it's all about us being at the center, 
the battle for our desires, what we want, it messes everything up and even messes up kind of the spiritual prayers and the connection that we have because God isn't answering those uh, prayers when it's all about us and we're on the throne. Then, verse 4, he goes on. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So now James shifts from not just conflict with people to the conflict that we can find ourselves in with God. And he begins by saying, you adulterous people. And why does he say we're adulterous people? Because we are. (laughs) Because God... He's all in in terms of his love for us, isn't he? He is all in on us. How do we know that he's all in on his love for us, that he's fully committed to us? Yes, he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. If someone lays down their life for you, do you think they're committed to you? Do you think they're all in? God is all in. He sent his son who laid down his life for us. He is committed to us. And that's the kind of relationship he wants to have with us, a covenantal marriage relationship. But what we do with God is we look to him, not in terms of having a kind of covenantal covenantal marriage relationship. We look to God and say, we want friends with benefits. God, I'll be your friend um, when it's convenient for me. I'll be friends with you when I want to benefit from you. But then when that's done, I'm going to put you back into a place of obscurity because I want to be friends with the world. And that's not how God works. God is fully committed to us. He doesn't do friends with benefits. He does full commitment. And I know that sometimes people say, man, God's standards are so high. He demands so much. He wants all of this commitment. Guess what? Why? Because we don't know what love is, but God does. Real love is committed. Real love is devoted. Real love is sacred. And that's the way that God loves us. Fully committed, fully devoted, and it's sacred. And we don't get it because we want the friends with benefits side of things. And God's saying, no, 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 I, I want a, a full commitment. I want to give, I've given you it all. And I want it all back in return. I want us to have this kind of relationship. But we do the friends with benefit things because we say, God, I'll be friends with you when it's convenient, but I want to be friends with the world too. And James is saying here in this passage, listen, you can't uh, be friends with the world. And uh, when you do, you're an enemy towards God. So you can't have both ways. You can't say, uh, I'll be friends with you, God, and friends with the world. And by the way, when he's talking about the world, he's not talking about creation. He's talking about a world system, a world system that, again, pushes us at the center of things, people, a world system that says, hey, I'm at the center of the universe. It's all about me, as opposed to saying, God, no, you're at the center, and it's all about you. And the world says, if it feels good, do it. You do you. Go for it. You're the most important thing. You live life for you. And God says, no, you live life for me. It's different. And so that kind of relationship doesn't work. And so he he just points it out. We get ourselves in conflict. We become enemies of God when we try to do the adulterous thing. Friendship here. God, I need you when I want to benefit. I'll set you aside the rest of the time. So then he goes on to say this. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that jealousy, that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to live in us? Now, this is a little bit of a tricky verse to interpret. But I think based on the context that what James is saying is this, that if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, 
You receive the Holy Spirit of God into your life. He indwells in you. And that Spirit, the Spirit of God, desires your full devotion, your full devotion to God. It's God's heart. It's a jealous, and it's not a, a negative jealousy. It's a, it's a jealousy for our good, that God wants us to be fully devoted to Him. He doesn't want us to live with a divided heart. He wants us fully connected and committed to Him. That's the kind of, of, of uh, desire that God has for us, that we, we, we really have that full devotion to Him. I heard a story um, a while back about Michael Jordan. Some of you guys know who Michael Jordan is, a great basketball player. And it's a story that was told by a friend of his named Fred Whitfield. Whitfield. This is a picture of the two of them together. But it's a story that Fred told, retold that he had Jordan over at, to his house, his home in North Carolina, and he had him over and they were hanging out. And after hanging out for a while, they said, hey, let's go out for dinner. But it was getting colder in the evening, and so Jordan said to his friend, hey, Fred, could I, could I borrow a jacket because it's getting colder? And so Fred says, yeah, sure, go ahead. Go help yourself to my closet. There's some jackets in there. Um, grab something, and we'll go out. Well, Jordan goes back into his room, into the closet, and Fred waits, and he waits, and he waits, and eventually, Michael Jordan comes out with a jacket, but not just one jacket. He has a whole armful of jackets, some other clothes, a couple of pairs of shoes, and he's got them all together. Now, the one unifying thing about all these clothes that he was carrying is that they all had the Puma logo on them, okay? So Jordan comes out with all of these things, all of these clothes with Puma clothes. And if you don't know, Michael Jordan is... Um, pretty good friends with Nike, okay? Just, just so you know, right? So he has all these Puma clothes. He throws them on the ground, and then he leaves, and he goes into the kitchen, and all of a sudden, he comes out of the kitchen with a butcher knife, and he takes the butcher knife, and he starts to shred and tear and cut all of Fred's Puma clothes, After he's thoroughly done shredding all the clothes, he picks everything up, takes it out to the trash, comes back in and says to Fred, I don't ever want you to, I don't ever want to see you wearing anything other than Nike because you can't ride the fence. Interesting statement, right? And it sounds pretty extreme, doesn't it? You know why? Because it's about clothing. That's why. I know that Jordan cares about clothes and Nike, but it's clothing. But James is saying, this is about God. It's about a relationship with him. How much more important is that? And James is saying, listen, you can't ride the fence. He's saying, you need to be fully devoted. Why? Because God is fully devoted to you. He's given his son for you. He's given his life for you. He's given you the promise of eternal life. And anything other than full devotion back just doesn't make sense, does it? This is how God cares for us. This is the commitment that he's made to us. So we can't ride the fence. Here's the problem. We want to be fully devoted to God, but we struggle, don't we? We struggle because we still end up wanting to also be friends with the world. We end up wanting to do the friends with benefits thing. And we end up finding ourselves in a whole lot of trouble as a result. But that's where this next verse is so encouraging. Let me read it for you. It says this, but he gives us more grace. Amen? Amen? Isn't that good news? But he gives us more grace, and we need it (laughs) desperately. He shows us grace, unmerited favor, 
Not because we deserve it, nothing done to earn it, because he does. It's his love for us. And it says this. This is what Scripture says, and he's quoting uh, Proverbs chapter 3. Um, he says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. That God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. So the point is this, that God is gracious. And listen, if you are proud, that is you put yourself at the center, God's going to be opposed to that. But if you humble yourself, guess what? You receive more grace and favor. That's encouraging. That's, a, that's an important thing for us to get, that we understand that. In fact, Jesus talks about this as well. Remember, he says, um, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are humble, spiritually poor. Why? Because they'll experience blessing. That's the whole idea. And so what, what keeps us from moving forward spiritually? It's pride. It's putting ourselves at the center. But when we, we humble ourselves, we, um, we experience more grace. And that's the idea. Jonathan Edwards is a, a famous pastor and theologian um, in the 1800s. And he uh, he wrote many things and has a book that he wrote called uh, Thoughts on Revival. And right there, you're thinking to yourself, man, couldn't the you know, publisher have helped him out a little bit with the title? <laughs> you know, maybe made it a little more interesting. But it's very just straightforward. It's just his thoughts on revival. And the, the idea is this, that Jonathan Edwards experienced and saw uh, several different revivals. And over the course of his seeing revival, and revival, by the way, is where you see in the church a movement of God where people are turning to God, repenting and growing, and the church is flourishing, and people are coming to know him, and they're sharing him with others, and there's a, a deep sense of community within the church, um, Christians working together, experiencing God, and it's a beautiful thing. But what he observed through these different uh, revivals is that they, they would end up dying out. They would end up stopping and the reason for it is this. Christians started fighting with each other. Is that surprising? That the, when the God was moving, it was great until the Christians started fighting with each other. The quarrels, the fights started coming up, and then it just killed the revival. And so in his book, he was just kind of writing about his thoughts, and he just kind of boiled it down to this is what kills the God's movement, that blessing, and the community that happens within, with people and relationships. And he boiled it down to this, spiritual pride. That's what he boiled it down to. Pride that, keeps, that God is opposed to keeps the revival, keeps the blessing from moving forward. But humility is a different story. And so this is what he, he points out. And this is what James is saying. Listen, God's opposed to the proud, but he gives more grace. He gives favor to those who are humble. So the question is, well, how do we humble ourselves? How do we make sure that we're humble before God and we're not in, a, in opposition to him? This is where James then goes on to give us very practical solutions of how we can respond differently. And he begins by saying this in verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Submit yourselves then to God. And Doug did a good job last week talking about submission. Submission is the idea of this. It's, it's um, rendering intelligent service. Submission is not just a mindless act. It's a decision that you make. And James is simply saying, listen, you're making a decision to say, God, you're God and I'm not. And it's coming to him and saying, instead of saying, God, you need to respond to me and submit to me, it's me making a decision to say, I'm going to respond to you and submit to your ways. That's the difference. And so it's submitting to God. 
And by the way, it is not take away our personal responsibility. So it's not just that we just, well, I'll just submit and do nothing. Well, I weekly, well, God, you know, just ask God to do everything. No, because look at the next part of this verse. It says this, we submit ourselves to God, but then we resist the devil and he will flee for you. So submission, by the way, is not weakness. Humility is not weakness. It's, it's simply saying, God, you're in charge and I'm not. And now I'm going to uh, live my life responsibly. And that means resisting the devil. And what does that mean, resisting the devil? Well, how do we resist the devil? It's resisting um, the, the devil's lies. And what did the devil want to do? He wanted to take over the thrones of God, right? He wanted to be in charge. He wanted to be brought back into a place of prominence. He said, my control. And so that's the same, that's pride. That's spiritual pride, right? That's us back at the center, not God at the center. So we resist the lies of the enemy to say, put yourself back at the center of things and say, God, you're at the center of things. So we resist the devil. When we do, he, re- he will flee from us. So this is good news. So when we say, no, no, I'm going to submit myself to God. I'm going to live, walk humbly with him. And then we resist the lies of the enemy to assert ourselves back in the place of prominence. That's, we, we, get, the, we get the benefit of, of the uh, enemy fleeing from us. Then verse 8, because you're like, that's really hard. Yes, verse 8 says this, come near to God and he will come near to you. Isn't that a great statement? Your translation may say, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I love this promise. So good, especially in the context of resisting the enemy and the world and the desires that we have within us to say me first, um, to say, okay, here's, here's my, my support. I draw near to God, and he will draw near to me. When we were talking about this passage with the teaching team here at South Hills this last week, Doug, who was a part of that meeting, um, I asked the question, guys, how do we resist the devil? How does that work? And he immediately said, well, you draw near to God. <laughs> and I love that, just immediate response, draw near to God. And then he painted this picture, and I thought it was so great. He, he talked about how if you're a, a soldier in a battle, and you have tanks uh, as a part of your, um, you know, military advance, it would be foolish to be a soldier that walks ahead of the tank with your gun trying to shoot the enemy, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it make much more sense? Wouldn't it be way more wise if you're that soldier to say, I'm going to tuck myself in behind the tank, right? Wouldn't that make more sense? And that's the idea. That's the picture that Doug painted. I think it's so great. You draw near to God. It's not, hey, I'm going to battle this all out by myself. I got this. Resist the devil, all that kind of stuff. No, no, no. It's, it's saying, okay, I got to draw near to God. I'm going to come near him. I'm going to get behind him. I'm going to stay close. I'm not going to go out on my own. And as I do, that's the safest place for us to be, isn't it? And God's right there and he's strong, and he's powerful. He wants to help us. He gives us more grace when we humble ourselves, and that's the beauty of this verse. We draw near to God, and he will come near to you. It's the safest place, the best place for us to be. Then he goes on to say, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So um, it's basically saying, God, I'm, I'm a sinner. I need, I need a refreshing in my heart, and that's the great promise that Lord created me a clean heart. Only God can do that. We draw near to God so that we can for, find forgiveness for our spiritual pride, for wanting things our way, for doing things our way. So we come and we experience purify our hearts, create in me a clean heart. Help me not to be double-minded. Help me not to ride the fence, but God be fully committed, fully devoted to you. Then verse 9, it says this, uh, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. The idea is this, a godly sorrow that we recognize that we are broken, 
that we do have things in our life that are, are sinful and shameful to say, I'm going to repent of that, have a godly sorrow, and then, then we can be saying, God, now I need you to lift me up, which is the next verse here. Let me show you. It says this, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Isn't that great? As we humble ourselves before the Lord, he lifts us up. This is, this is uh, a, the good news that for us. It's not us lifting ourselves up. It's saying, God, I come to you. You, you lift us up. That's the hope. That's the, that's the encouragement. Now, this is how we respond differently to God. The question then becomes, okay, James, you started about people. How do we, re, how do we respond differently to people in the midst of conflict? And so that's where he then goes in the next verse, verse 11. He comes back to it and says this, brothers and sisters, and he's talking to people in the church. He's talking to Christians even, right? Surprise, surprise, conflict can happen in the church. So brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Do not slander one another. What a, what a, what a challenging uh, statement that he makes. And you may be thinking to yourself, okay, well, what does it mean to slander? Help me, uh, help me understand that. I, I brought a definition of, of what it means to slander that may be helpful for you. It's any derogatory statement, true or untrue, to diminish or harm another person intentionally or unintentionally. This is a challenging thing. Because when we are in conflict with someone, what do we want to do? We want to slander them. We want to say things that might harm them. Or we want to just say, hey, let me just, again, that dump truck, let me dump and tell you all their faults, all their failings. That's what we want to do. And sometimes we just do it outright. Other times, we do it kind of more subtly. You know, we say something nice about somebody, but then we go on to say, but let me tell you all this other stuff. Oh, yeah, that person, yeah, they're, they're, they're a hard worker. Yeah, they're a good employee. But, right? But let me tell you what they did this last week. Let me tell you what they said. Let me tell you how they operate. And all of a sudden, it's now damage, damage to fame. It's harming their reputation uh, to somebody else. That's slander. You say, oh, hmm, he's dating her, huh? Okay, interesting. I mean, she's a nice girl and all, but, but, you hear that? <laughs> but she's pretty self-centered. I mean, I, let me tell you about all my experience with her and all the different ways that she has shown to be all about her, and let me go on and on and on. Do you hear how easy that can happen? It can happen in lots of different ways. We can slander people just straight out. We can do it subtly. It doesn't matter. This, it's when we're intentionally or unintentionally bringing harm to another person's reputation. James says, don't do it. Why? Why not, James? What's the problem with actually just maybe being honest or talking about this person or blow, you know, saying what I, what I think? He, this is what he says. He says, anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When we speak against someone else, what are we becoming? A judge. We are becoming a judge and we, we're judging the law. What law is he talking about? The same law he talked about earlier in his chapter, the royal law, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Treat people the way that you want to be treated. So when you judge and when you slander, you're not actually treating them the way that you would want to be treated, right? And so he's saying, listen, 
be very, very careful about it. He says this, when you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. You're saying, I'm better than the royal law. I can say what I want. I'm the one that gets to, to, to tell people and make the decisions on what's right or wrong, what's moral or immoral. I get to tell them what people are doing is good or bad. I'm the judge. That's the problem. Why is that a problem? He goes in verse 12, he says this, therefore, um, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So he's saying, listen, there's only one judge. It's God, not you. Who are you to judge your neighbor? That's not how you want to be judged by them. So why are you doing it? Just imagine if I walked into a courtroom and I saw the judge and I said, hello, your honor, go ahead and step down because I'm here to take over. How do you think the courtroom would respond? They'd look at me like I was crazy, right? I'd probably be put in jail, right? Because it's not my job. And what we do when we become judges of other people is that we're taking on God's job. And guess what? God opposes those who do his job. He's the only one that can, that, that can judge and is able to save and destroy. We leave that to him. So you're saying, that's a whole lot, Scott. That's hard. That's difficult. So what can I practically do? Let me give you two things, very practically, very simply here, to take away, to say, how can I, how can I grow in this area? The first one, it's extremely practical. You ready for it? <clears throat> you ready? Talk less. Okay? It's that simple. In fact, James helps us with that earlier in James chapter 1. Look at what he says. He says, everyone should be quick to listen and what? Slow to speak and slow to become angry. So the best way not to slander, guess what? Don't talk. Just say less. Be slow to speak. And so that when you are ready to speak, you've listened and you've thought through and you're not exploding in anger. So we just talk simply, say less. Wonder, should I say that or not? Hold on to it a little bit longer, okay? You know what I'm talking about? You've had that thought. Should I say this? I'm just going to say it. Stop. Hold it in a little bit longer. Just simply talk less. Here's the second one. Talk less. The other one is, is walk humbly. Walk humbly. Now, I told you earlier, uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote that book, Thoughts on Revival, and kind of pinpointed its spiritual pride that, that creates this stoppage of revival and great community within the church that's growing. And he, in, in that book, uh, gives like six different marks of spiritual pride and therefore spiritual humility. And um, I think it's a helpful list. And so what I've done is I've just kind of taken that list and I've sort of uh, put it together and paraphrased it because, he, again, he's an 18th century writer, and so it's a little bit archaic, the writing, but I'll just paraphrase it, put it in a little bit of a list form so we can look at it as a little bit of a humility inventory so we can stop and say, how are we doing? So let me just show them to you. Humble people. Humble people do this. They examine their own faults. They examine their own faults. Spiritual pride gets you to a point to noticing other people's faults and being really good at spotting them. Humility says, I got to examine my own heart first. That's humility. It's a different orientation, a different way of living. Second one is this, to uh, are slow to speak of others' faults. Again, spiritual pride gets us to um, want to speak of other people's faults and failings, and we do it with an air of disdain. That's spiritual pride. But humility says, ah, if I have to speak of someone's 
shortcomings, it's going to be with mercy, and it's going to be with grace. That's a different way of doing it. Here's a third one. Um, Stick with others and don't quickly separate when it's hard. Pride says, hey, you criticize me or I'm criticizing you, then boom, we're done. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Separation. Humility simply says, okay, you know what? This is hard, but I'm going to stick with you. We're going to work this out. I want to try. I don't want to just remove myself from relationship just because you're being critical of me or I'm being critical. Well, let's, let's hang in there. There's a different type of humility, an orientation, again, not me first, but others first, that says, hey, I'm not Im- quit immediately abandoning this relationship. Here's the next, fourth one. Fourth one is this. Humble people are flexible rather than dogmatic. People who are pride think they have all the answers, right? And they're very certain of what they believe. And when you're proud, you have a hard time distinguishing between the majors and the minors um, because to you, when you're proud, everything's the major. And so humble people just simply have a a level of flexibility and they're less dogmatic in how they they handle people and issues. A A fifth one is this. Aren't afraid of confronting, but they don't like it aren't afraid of confronting, but don't like it. See, a proud person is like, oh, I'm going to tell them what's the truth, right? I'll confront them, and I'm going to, you know, give it to them. That's what a proud person does. A humble person doesn't shy away from confrontation. Um, They're willing to do it when it's necessary, but they don't love it, right? They aren't doing it to try to make someone put them in their place or bring them down. It's a different way of, of again, of looking at it. Doing it. And the fifth one, uh, sorry, the sixth one is this. Don't sit in self-pity. Don't sit in self-pity. A proud person, again, it's all about them. When they don't get their way, I'm upset. But a humble person says, hey, I don't deserve it. I, I'm just, uh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a sinner saved by grace, and I'm grateful to the life that God has given me, and it's a different kind of orientation. So the question is, how are you doing on this inventory? We all have a little bit of room to grow, don't we? But here's the good news. We can turn to God. We can turn to Him. He is our great resource. We can look to Him for wisdom. We can look to Him for grace, and we can have the assured promise that He is fully committed to us. So let's take a moment and let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word, how practical the instruction is for our lives. At the same time, Lord, we, we cannot do these things on our own. We all have or will have relational conflicts, either currently now or coming up in our lives, that we desperately need your wisdom and we need your help with. God, help us to be people who respond differently because of our faith in you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us more grace, that you would give us humility, help us to draw near to you, (laughs) knowing that as we draw near, you're right there to help us, to guide us, to lead us. When we need to ask for forgiveness, Lord, give us the strength and courage, the humility to ask for forgiveness. Lord, help us to walk humbly in our relationships in such a way that's not about us, but it's about honoring and pleasing you. God, that's how we want to live, and we need your help. We thank you for your all-in love for us. We thank you for the fact that you sent your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins so that we could find forgiveness, mercy, and grace. God, we praise you, and we lift you up in your name. Amen.